If you are sitting at home next to your radio, you're hearing the music faster than you are if you're in the hall. Listening for the secret. Searching for the sound. This is The Sound Podcast with Ira Haberman.
tell you where the fog will sleep. Like falling houses, the lighthouse keep. Why fall asleep in the sand and wind? Man, the fog will throw you home again. You've been listening to a medley of Help on the Way, Slipknot, and Franklin's Tower live from the Rosemont Horizon in Chicago, Illinois, March 11, 1993. In fact, this show, as you'll soon hear, is the first Dead Show noted promoter, club owner, philanthropist, activist, and raconteur Peter Shapiro ever attended. He recently published a memoir of his life's work to date in a must-read book, The Music Never Stops, co-penned by Dean Budnick the editor at Relics Magazine. I've always been intrigued by Peter Shapiro's efforts to bring quality music to live audiences. Up until recently, I've had a very general periphery idea of his accomplishments, but after reading his book, I needed to know more directly from Peter himself. This book is so fascinating. I mean, it really is. It's a guide to uh, concert promotion. It's a guide to being a music fan. It's a guide to just living your life and understanding the perils and how to get over them. It, it really is an amazing book. So thank you for writing it with Dean. It's, uh, it's amazing. Yeah, no, it feels good to, feels good to hear that after working on it for a few years um, to hear now people start to respond to actually reading it. It's like putting on a show a little bit. One of the better parts is afterwards, the great show is the hearing people talk about, you know, attending the show and, and uh, 
So it's this is different, but it's still cool. Uh, it speaks to the 72 hour principle too, right? Now that you've put it to bed and everybody's talking about it, that 72 hours is going to last a few months. It's not out for a bit, but those 72 hours and Peter Shapiro being talked about, it's going to last for a bit, just like your 72 hour principle, right? Yeah, that's funny that you point that out. Yeah, I guess I do talk about the same thing in the book, like the the hot um the after a show, right? There's like the trail dust. Ooh, that's a good yeah. word, trail dust. Maybe I should have <laughs> used that. In the, book. the trail dust that comes after a show, and just the memories, you know. And for me, and going to a show, like I talk about, you know, it gives me energy for about 72 hours. I feel it. But then it starts to fade. And I'm like, oh, man, I need it again. I need that feeling. I need to go to a show. So, yeah, it's just it's that doesn't really fade for me. That 72 hour thing. Right. I after a few days, I need another show. You know, I need to go feel that feeling again. Let's head back now. You're at Northwestern. It's 1993, and you see your first Grateful Dead show, March 11th, 93, at Rosemount. Talk about that first show as much as you can remember and the feeling you got, because you weren't a deadhead at all. You had just gone to see the show. Talk about the right. energy, yeah. the feeling, all of that from that night. Yeah, it's amazing. It's almost 30 years now. Um, I guess it's coming on 30 years pretty quick i was a student at northwestern you know i remember i can still remember it rosemont horizon uh the show and then you know they had spoken word guest ken nordine came in and just sent me you know the, the the sound effect of in an arena when you're 20 years old and you know you've got a buzz going and all I know is somehow I ended up then in a parking lot <laughs> and I don't know what we did. what did we do 30 years ago without, you know, a cell phone and on tour and going to dead shows or any show. And like you lose your friends. I went to the parking lot before the show ended. I ended up in there. I don't, and I don't even know how I met up with them again. You know, <laughs> we're so used to these phones now, but anyways, yeah. I end up in the lot. I look around, I'm in a drum circle, it's snowing, it's March in Chicago, we're in the parking lot, Rosemont Arise, and I am, and, and there are all these kids that are also like in their early 20s, and they're not going back to Northwestern, no, or home, <laughs> you know, they're in, they're outside the school bus, and they are looking for something, you know, they're, they're looking for something they're not getting at home and so they're on the road they were you know the obviously fun is part of it but i could just see that there is like and by the way it still doesn't exist today there's no it's nothing like dead tour you know fish or no no nothing's like dead tour was agreed so we talk about you know doors in the music business and people show up at doors or earlier so they can be first in line at doors to get the best spot along the rail in the front of the venue i stayed up all night was there when it opened that's the only time in my life i did that and i was researching what had been done on on this scene at, uh, around the dead and i was a film kid a film major at northwestern and i got uh, another student who had a big video camera and we went and rented a van 
six weeks later, we went on a summer tour, summer 93. And I made in credit to Northwestern, they gave me uh, student credit. I made an hour long documentary about the scene outside a dead show in the nineties. And uh, if anyone's listening, they can Google it. It's called in miles to go and should be on YouTube. And it was really, I just became really, in, you know, I'd never seen anything like the circus of a dead show. And I went and captured it. Uh, you do, you do mention miles to go. And unfortunately when you went to make uh publish miles to go or at least uh sell it to somebody to put it out there was another uh show going on at the same time tie-dyed which you were hired to produce uh at least get video for and streeters what we call streeters today was you know interviewing deadheads on tour um did did those two experiences sort of shape what was to come forward in terms of you becoming a um a promoter or, or were you still dead fast? <laughs> no pun intended, still dead fast into becoming a, a, a movie movie maker. Uh, that's a good question. Um, no, it, it led me on the way I spent like, you know, two summers, 93, I'm in miles to go 94 on tie dye in dead lot doing streeters, you call it. And, and just embedding, you know, into that scene. I could not, I did not get any of the dead members to do any interviews. I couldn't, which is ironic because later when I did Fairview, you know, I did the, yeah. their reunion. And I say, I, I was kind of created out of the dead lot. They created, and then later I was in a unique position to do the reunion because I had these, I was doing shows with each of them. I wouldn't be here doing this talk with you today, the book, any of it if I hadn't had that experience on summer tour, if I hadn't gone to that, that show at Rosemont Horizon in the parking lot changed my life. You know, there's no question if I had just not ended up in the parking lot and not gone to the library and made a film about the dead, I was on a different path. You know, you know, that movie sliding doors where they say you either make the subway train or you don't based on the doors closing and your life is different in either scenario, you know, my life's different because I went to a dead show and ended up in the parking lot, you know, because I went to the library the next morning and then I went on dead tour six weeks later because I, there were no films kind of that captured it. And I went and loved it. And that's how I met Larry Block, who owned Wetlands. He saw the films and even though they weren't really music, live music films, they were about the scene. Larry had built wetlands to be about the dead. And it felt like, you know, a dead show. And he saw my films and said, Hey, you would be a good, per- I'll give you wetlands. I'll- you can pay me over time. It's like, you can pay me over time. And for me coming out of the dead shows and the dead tour wetlands, this home for the dead and that scene in New York city you know, was the closest thing to it. And it was just after Garcia passed away in August 95. Right. When I met Larry and I met him in February 96 and he owned wetlands was looking to pass it on. And I was like, I knew I spent all that time with all these young people, uh, dead shows. Just when Jerry passed away, the, that need for that kind of experience and that improvisational music and a scene and a place to kind of lose yourself. I just knew that wouldn't go away 
with Jerry. You know, there'd still be people looking for that. And so that's why I leaned into doing wetlands or taking it over from Larry. And the whole, I thought there would be a birth for this jam our scene today, the jam band scene, I guess you call it. But I knew that people would just splinter off. Everyone went on dead tour in the night, you know. But then when he was gone, it southern rock people went into like government mule or the crows blue grassy people went string cheese yeah. jazzy more deadheads went medesky martin and wood dj logic um the pro americana was mo you know god street wine you know obviously fish was a big thing and traveler was already existed but the whole jam scene you know creek starts after garcia passes away and I just was like, I want to be a part of continuing this. Some freaks, by the way, don't splinter off. Some freaks enjoy it all, all the time, 24 seven. That's, that's how I'm at you today. Um, you know, the wetlands thing is interesting because as much as it was a music venue, it was participation row for what Larry really wanted to do. Really. It was really about, you know, fundraising and getting ideas out and encouraging the community to do a lot more within the greater scope of American life. Um, and you've gone on to do that with with other projects um, as well. But that's that's really where that idea started, right? To do more, to to have this engaged audience who want to participate in the in their own future and the future of their children. And that all really started and was sort of part of larry's wish for you when he took when you took over wetlands right yeah i you, you know my activity with headcount and a lot of the nonprofit stuff it really is a direct line a lot of my stuff you know to rosemont horizon to wetlands you know wetlands was a pre-internet place you know now we have the internet to kind of do meetups and sign petitions or just you know distribute information before that, you know, he started Wetlands Larry did in 89. I took it over 96. You know, the internet, just communication was different and you needed to do it in person. Like if we were running a meeting for Amnesty International or Rainforest Action Network and it's 1996, 798, you would need a place to have people physically meet. Right. You just couldn't do it on a chat room or Zoom. What we're doing now, it's, you know, just didn't exist. So you then it's like, okay, where do we do the meeting? At the library, at the school, at the church, at the tennis, local tennis courts, or at the rock club. And the cool idea was like, let's do meetings before the shows at the rock club early participation row i think you said that's true you know and because there were various organizations information at the shows on the walls and that's what participation row is today where we bring like multiple organizations to a festival or to a show and it's just you know it's a lot when we create a participation row at headcount that stuff's all direct line from wetlands you know and now it's just how do you do it today you know instead of at the rock club it's at the festival and it's just, you learn, you get better doing reps, I say. And that's in a book, like the 10,000 shows. Yeah. You just, the more you do it, the more you learn how to do it, right? And to do it better. And 
that's why I've gotten hopefully pretty good now doing it almost basically every night since 96. I can sense when volume and lighting, I mean, those things are pretty easy, but like just overall feel from when you walk into the venue and security and how that touches and the bathroom situation or just any point along the line, like it's all important yeah. and all the details really do matter. And that's what I've learned, by the way. One thing is like the small stuff when putting on a concert is big stuff. Like you can break down, the line can break. And it's one of those things when the line breaks, the whole rope can come down. You know, when you go to a show and you have a negative experience with part of it, it ruins your whole experience, you know? So we try to focus all, all those little parts add up to the whole thing. Really, it sounds trite, but it's true. Um, not just for the fans, but also for the artists. When you opened up the bowl, um, you recount a story where the Roots played the bowl and they didn't have monitors on stage or at least a monitor mix on stage or off to the right. And that kind of freaked them out a bit. And, and you know, after that show, you changed things. But you've always been a promoter that's not only on the side of the fans, but so on the side of the artists that you're putting on stage too. That's, that's equally as important to you. Well, you know, I try, <laughs> but yeah. And, and listen, when we, and it's frustrating sometimes because the venue, you know, isn't always perfect. You know, I've tried and now there, the venues have gotten a lot better, but when you or when you're putting on a show and it's an outdoor show and the weather's not right. Right or early Brooklyn Bowl where the monitor board was like built into the front of house. We tried something, you know, but it wasn't right. And the roots of it, you know, you feel it can be frustrating, you know, wanting to do it right and not being able to. So like, and, and by the way, I'm responsible. It's ultimately on me. Like I've done these 10,000 shows. I haven't been to all of them. But I'm respond. If something goes wrong, when we count ten thousand, it's like if something goes wrong, I get the call. It's on me, even if I'm not there or I didn't say something. This, you know, if the security person gets a ha, did something not, you know, perfect or anyone anywhere along the line, it's on me. And so that's another thing you have to learn, which is it can be frustrating when something screws up because of and the action an unforced error by someone that's not you right but yet you're blamed and you got to also moderate your response that's why you know it's famous concert promoters yell bill graham yeah you know ronnie delzer my friend you know these guys it can because you're under high stress and you want everything to go right everything matters things and then things go wrong and sure. so i've you know you, you gotta like learn to like hold your tongue squeeze your leg before <laughs> losing your mind or yelling you know and um i feel pretty good that i think i'm no you know i'm not really someone who who yells but it can be because you want it to be a 10 for the fans, for the artists, like you said, the artists are your friends now, my friends. I want the, it to be right. You know, that's why it's really hard to go to a show when it's not full, if it hasn't sold. Well, for me, like I feel pain 
when I'm in the room and it's not right. And, and not right can be even not crowded. It's hard. Um, it's much less hard when it's good. <laughs> you know, that's, that's when it's easy, it's easy. And when it's hard, you know, it's really hard. Was taking over the cap a no-brainer for you, given the history of that room and what it would eventually mean to you and your partnership with Phil Lesh and, and others that have come since those 2014 shows? Was the cap a no-brainer? I mean, I know that there was a ton of pressure on you, and I understand that originally it was a lease agreement that grew by circumstance into something much more. But was it, did you have your heart set on owning the cap at that point when you, when you purchased it? Yeah. The cap grew on me, you know, I had been there in the nineties. I think it was 98 for a strange folk show. I never thought twice like, Oh, I got to get this. You know, I didn't even, but when you really then sit back from distance. Yeah. I did see the location of the cap in Portchester, 30 miles north of New York City, being like an amazing location because we could draw, I felt, from the whole, you know, Westchester, Connecticut, even up Massachusetts, you know, being on I-95, it's a mile off I-95. I was like, we can get the city people, the train stations right here, but we get so many more. So I feel today that the Caps location is even like better than a Beacon Theater. And it's really unique that a rock palace built by a Thomas Lamb, who's really the preeminent architect in American history of these palace theaters. It's the only one not in the downtown city. Right. Like he did the Boston Opera House, the original Ziegfeld in New York. They're mostly in like downtown Chicago, downtown New York, downtown Boston. It's rare. I think the cap is the only Lamb Theater, pretty sure, not in a downtown. So like, and I, I, I love the, you know, we can actually sell tickets. We think faster at the cap in Port Chester and Westchester, you know, faster than the Beacon because there's just so many people up here. But we, we draw, the concentric circle is really big around it. And when we just did Ween three nights, mm-hmm. we had people from like 46 states, you know, Tedeschi yeah. trucks three nights. When you go multiple night, I think this is in the book, like, you it's one plus one equals three, you know, or right. one plus one plus one equals four or five. Cause when you go multiple nights, you see you increase the ability to get people to come to your show from further away. And that's you what know, you with ex- multiple nights, people will road trip people. And that's fun. And like, yeah. that's, that's why I do a lot of the multi-nighters. Um, the first of those multi-nighters was Phil at the cap and you signed basically an agreement with Phil that, you know, this would be his East coast venue of choice um, while he was built building Terrapin Crossroads or had even opened up Terrapin Crossroads at the time. How important was it for you to secure Phil for those dates and sort of really make, I mean, they had played further there before, but really make Phil's home, the cap on the East coast. How with those huge runs, how, how important was it to, to sign Phil to those long deals? I mean, the Phil deal changed my life, really, you know, and ended up, it was risky. We did 45 shows, the deal. You basically, the deal is this. If it was short of sellout, you're probably screwed. You lose. Right. But if it sold out, it worked. And I just bet, and I, I mean, I would do it again. You know, we've done like, oh, we're probably at about 200 shows in 10 years. It was 45. 
people thought that was risky. And uh, we've done over 80 at the Gap, but another 100 elsewhere. Yeah. Um, and I was the grateful that thing just doesn't fade. Right. You know, and plus I knew the idea that we would do fill in friends. It's not the same lineup every time that we would get to recreate the lineup and create new lineups each time he would come for three nights or whatever. And that's what we've done. And what's cool is he trusts me enough that I get to help put them together. We recommended the Dawes band guys to them and got to do Chris Robinson or Luther Dickinson and Jackie Green and then Eric Krasner from Soul Lives. Like, I'd love to try it. And then we got Robert Randolph in on it. You know, we got the Prez Hall guys uh, did a cool thing one year, like second set drums and space. Instead of just drums, we brought New Orleans Prez Hall into it. Um, so it's just been really cool to get to like do Schofield one night, Medeski and Warren, or the yeah. other day, you know, we did Russo and we got some of the Woodstock Josh Kaufman scene and Nikki Bloom and Amy Helm. And that was one. And then we're all, you know, we're working right now for nine nights of Phil in October at the Capitol. And I, I don't really want to say it right here, but like, we're working as three different runs of three, three we and and three different bands, and we're trying to get some new cool people that I think you'd be psyched to hear about, like into Phil, you know, and educate more people right. about the music of the dead, or not even educate, get them playing it with Phil, because well, that'll last forever. But that's the thing, right? That's the difference between Bobby and Phil. And you kind of mentioned it in the book a little bit is that Phil is always has always been about perpetuating the music to another generation. And so you've accomplished that task by introducing so many musicians to the scene, musicians who may have listened to their parents' American beauty on, on vinyl when they were growing up or whatever. But you've introduced so many musicians to the scene because you paid attention to things that Phil would say about perpetuating the music of the band and perpetuating the spirit of the band. And you were able to bring that to a fore with not just Phil, but almost all of your projects since, since, since then. I mean, um, I'm glad that comes through in the book. If you say it does, I believe, because it should, I mean, that is, you just nailed it. Phil is about, he loves to play with new people. Right. He also loves like, dropping him in without a lot of rehearsal you know i remember being with kras now eric krasno backstage at the capitol and he was like you know of, of an 18 song show nine songs each set you know i think they like worked through four of them right. you know it sounds or five or six you know and yeah. kras is like well more than half of it we didn't play you know but that's what like phil likes and um Taylor Goldsmith, who's the lead singer from Dawes, who just did some Phil shows we brought in. Yep. Guy from a different world that we love to like bring into our world, spread the juice. He went to Phil, I think it was around some of the Brooklyn Bowl Nashville shows and was like, hey, how do you want to break down this song? Or how do you want to approach it? And how do you want me to play it? And Phil turned to Taylor and said, you'll know when you feel it. Yeah, You know, so Taylor's saying, how do I play this? And Phil's basically saying, you figure it out, you know, and that's Phil. I think he loves that in his jazz background, classical background. And just he loves that of the moment, which is probably revealing to why he's not playing with the same band and the same guys that he's been playing with 
from, you know, since he's a kid, he wants to play with new people and, and he loves having his kid Graham around. And like, that's what Phil wants to do. And I yeah. think it's good for the scene and there, Mickey and Billy, you know, but Phil does his thing, but I'm just glad we could get them together. You know, when we did there in 2015 for dead yeah. 50, um, and and who knows what the future you know if they can all make it to 60 healthy not you know knock on wood yeah i it'll be fun to see if you know if, if anything maybe can happen again um let's talk about fairly well because that was you know as uh, somebody who had seen i saw my first show in 91 uh i saw a few shows after that but unfortunately jerry passed way too early obviously um but for me, you know, Fare Thee Well was, was huge because it did introduce people who were, you know, on, on sort of tour for 92 and 93 and, and parts of 94 who were, you know, still part of the scene. But what, what, what 2015 did was reinvigorate everybody and really, really brought everybody back together in, in Chicago and to a lesser extent of all, although equally as important to Levi stadium. I know that you initially had planned to do a 40th anniversary, um, but that didn't come to fruition. What was it about the 50th and, and even the 50th had its potential hiccups. What was it about the 50th that, that you got everybody on side for that, that made that event happen with so many, you know, different attitudes. I mean, from members of the band, different attitudes and different ways of seeing the music at that point and different relationships, obviously, what was it that, what was the secret sauce to fairly well that, that made it happen? Um, we just, I just put my head down and set it up, but luckily I had the relationship with Phil, you know, with each of them personally. Yeah. Fan, you know, I was, I kind of say I was uniquely create existed to be able to do it because I, I think the tray element was key. You know, but it wasn't a big surprise for me. I believe I knew that putting Trey into the mix would be fire, you know, also just the buzz and tickets. And then musically, I just knew. So it wasn't that hard for me to see this, you know, the demand for tickets that some other people questioned. But I just see the impact that the 50th would have and especially with Trey. And, and in fact, they had never sold an online ticket before the Grateful Dead. Hmm. Garcia passed in August of 95, the first online ticket by Ticketmasters in 96. Wow. You know, all the things swirling around, did you think that you'd be able to make it happen? Like that it would actually come to fruition that these guys would all get on stage. I mean, you sold the tickets, um, but there was still some back and forth between the guys that, that left you a little uneasy. Yeah. Fairly well. It was scary. You know, I was scared. You know, I'm still scared going to a show. I walk up to a venue. I have a little bit of a pit in my stomach every time that goes away when I get in the venue, usually because I feel comfortable, but fairly well up into the end. That's why we, you know, it feels good when a show's over sometimes because the memories cannot change. You know, the experience people have when I knew, you know, and it rained the next day fairly well was a Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and it poured on Monday and Mountain Girl actually said, MG said to me, that's Jerry, he's crying. 
And you just got to put your head down. You know, there's a, a great saying, Gary Player, the golf guy, golf legend says, you know, it's funny, the more I practice, the luckier I seem to get. Right. And yeah. you got to just put the, you got to set up the table. You have to put the dishes out, the silverware out, the glassware out, all in the right place. You got to bake the chicken, the mashed potatoes, get everything right, the greens, you know, get some good wine. You set the table and then you just got to hope that the dinner, you know, goes great. The conversation, you know, you can only control so much, a lot of it. But but if things go right, you have to have to set the table right. And if things don't go right, if it rains, you still have had to have set the table right for greatness. You know, you have to have at Soldier Field then the security and the sound and the lights and the band and the rehearsals and the low meeting. And, you know, you got to just get all that right, you know, and I still I'm very thankful for how it went. That part of doing this, what I do is is nerve wracking, you know, still because you, you can't control all of it, you know, particularly the weather. That's why I like indoor menus. It's broken, the broken ball stuff, the capital. We don't have weather issues. Um, and, but by the way, since I started doing this in 96, the, it, those summers even harder. There's more, as, as you know, and all people listening know, there's more and more venues. There are all these boutique outdoor venues, new amphitheater, you know, it's really hard to sell tickets in our venues in the summer because there's just more options than ever before. You can go camping. I'm not even talking about other shows and venues. Just other you know, things a lot to of, do. Yeah. So much to do. And you know, for us, prime time is winter, actually. You know, fall's good and spring's good, but winter is just, you know, it's just you want to go inside and go see a show. At least I do. Uh is that why not only do I want to see a show, but I'd like at this point in my life to have a chair. Um, is that ultimately what led to Lockin? because you needed something to occupy your time in the summer because of all of these outdoor venues, you needed to have a festival, a, a tent pole for, for Dayglow or for Pete Shapiro or for whatever. Is that ultimately what Lockin was about? Yeah, locking. Well, a lot of for me is like opportunistic stuff. Like you're walking down the street, you see a space, you're like, holy cow, I love that. Locking, I got a phone call from Dave Fry who created Cord, and he was just like, I have this land that you need to see. And I did not have a festival. And you're right, the outdoor summer thing, I wanted to try my hand at it. Um, and I felt the location was strong and that you can drive there six, seven hours from Ohio, from New York, and also from Georgia. Yeah. And I know I'm a fan. I drive to shows like six hours is kind of the max range, but I felt like people would drive six hours. I, there's nothing like putting together 70, 80 man for day thing, you know, I, <laughs> It's madness, you know, but it's what, you know, when you get addicted to it and you get the bug, that's what it is. So I, I want to do my own take on it, too. So after going to, like, Lollapalooza, 
and seeing nine stages at once or going to Bonnaroo every year. Remember when you're at a festival and don't know which stage to go to because like Vanessa Martin Woods over here, Ben Harper's over there, right. Sonic yep. Youth would be over there, Beck's over here, you know, Bonnie Raitt's over there. You know, it's like, where do you go? What, what's the stage? So the, the lock-in idea was like you won – you stand still. And the first few years we had two stages next to each other. We would bounce back and forth. Yeah. And then we built the circle turning stage. So like Wilco we'd be playing. Right. And then as they finished, the stage would start turning and then Phil would be playing on the backside and turn and like, or we did some great turns from Humphreys, you know, in the lettuce or the other way around. And like, I always try to add a little bit of my own, you know, sauce to the spaghetti. You know, everyone can make spaghetti, but I try to make, you know, we just try to add a little bit of my own touch to it. I'm laughing because I, I have an image of Bobby Weir sitting on the couch, just spinning around during somebody else's set. And that's just an iconic memory for me of Lockin. I guess that was pre-pandemic, but, you know, just that Lazy Susan stage is so brilliant because not only do you have this idea of bands back to back, but there's times where people would join each other for the last song. Like lettuce would join Umphreys for the last song or Umphreys would join lettuce for the last. Like there's these, these amazing moments that happen very similar to the jammies in many respects where bands would join each other. And that just adds to the spirit of, of lock-in and keeping the music alive. Yeah, you got it. I mean, I just, it started at the jammies. I mean, it started at Wetlands and those power jams. Right. And then, I, and then I did it at the jammies and then I did it a lot. I love pairing musicians. I love unique of the moment stuff. It's back to like the risk and, you know, and Jerry talked about this. Jerry Garcia would say like, yes, you know, it, it, it's why people love the dead, you know, not, a, it didn't always work, but that risk of it not working is what creates when it does work it's more magic it is magic and we you know i've done plenty of things that where the turning stage doesn't quite you know can you thread the needle you know the, i know the lettuce we talk about lettuce and Humphreys, and like i remember like deitch and ryan and those guys like really wanting to thread the needle and jesus and and and, and nail that you know because it's like i think it's fun for them it's like why we love the music we do and you're doing the spot like music that's different each time you know two sets every show is a little bit different so um you talk about threading the needle and um newer bands coming on the scene and all of that and nothing could probably be more appropriate than to ask you about j-rad because here are five guys who don't necessarily know the dead's music who were asked in a pinch to put together a band. Joe was asked in a pinch to put together a band of all guys you knew from the wetlands. But what J-Rad has become is unbelievable that it started sort of as, will this work? Will this idea of five guys who don't know the music necessarily uh, work? And you've kind of hit lightning in a bottle with J-Rad and, and they've been able to have careers, musical careers, because of what they do with J-Rad. Um, how proud are you of that experiment and what's become of it? You know, the J-Rad thing, well, with most shows, the power of the music, the Grateful Dead, that like it can keep being reinvented. And there are new ways to, I mean, they just play it faster. 
Yes. Um, you know, each everyone's got their own unique take. I mean, just to drill it down to one sentence, they play it faster and in an inventive new way, approaching it and taking it to new places. But it's the same songs from 30, 40, 50 years. You know, it's amazing. It never fades. And they just grabbed it. You know, we're Dark Star Orchestra and a lot of bands, you know, recreated it to the as close as possible. Um the you know you've got five um or musicians who have incredible musicianship you know joe russo on drums and coming out of fat mama in colorado and more of a jazz approach and marco benevento and obviously they had the duo together Mm -hmm. metzger was around us at wetlands days with rana you know Tommy Hamilton with Brothers Past, remember that, out of Philadelphia. And obviously Dave Drywitz with Ween. And, like, you get these guys together, and they and it gets stronger, you know. It's familiarity. It becomes second nature. It becomes instinct. And once it becomes, you know, when you watch Bobby and Phil do a duo show, I don't know if you've ever seen that. Of course. But, you know, they can play off of and into and through each other's notes i swear they weave in and out of each other in a way that's only possible if you've been playing with the person for 50 years instinct feeling and and the j-rag guys you know they all knew each other a while and it was just like kindling on a fire you know or yeah you know when you add a little kindling it just pops and you added Grateful Dead to those five guys, and it just, you know, it popped. Uh, it's fun for me to watch. I don't really sit there and watch J-Rod. I'm like, so cool. I was part of the first show. I helped put this to, you know, the more, once you get caught thinking about stuff like that, like, oh, wow, look at all I've done. You know, I just know I'll get hit by lightning walking home, right. you know, or a car. You know, what I, what I try to think about is, like, what, do I, what do we do next with these guys? Or what do I do now? You know, I stay, I do think about it. I think about like what we can do and how to do it. And I'm in it. You know, I put myself inside the idea. I try not to step back back and like think about the idea. If you get what I mean. Totally, totally get it. Yeah. I'm going to, I'm going to let you go. But before I do, we have at least 10,000 more shows in in you. You have, you have a runway for a lot Uh, more. How many more? I don't, you know, I get tired of this sometimes. But then, sure, you know, I just go to a show, do the daytime stuff and the hard work and building new venues just so I can keep my addiction to live music going. So, yeah, I, I, think, uh, I think the answer is yes. I think uh, I can't see myself doing anything else. Thanks for taking the time, dude. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Ira. I appreciate what you do for the scene, buddy. After our conversation wrapped up, Peter and I discussed lots more, and I can tell you firsthand what an absolute mensch he is one who is definitely committed to the jam band scene. Grab his book, The Music Never Stops, at Better Bookstores, and of course, online, wherever you buy books. Before we leave you, let's head over to the Capitol Theater in Port Chester, New York, for Phil and Friends and Pride of Cucamonga, July 22, 2013. And then, as a special treat, let's head over to Joe Russo's dad at the newest Brooklyn Bowl in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, February 10, 2022, for an incredible Feel Like a Stranger.
You've been listening to The Sound Podcast. Technical production by Adam Karsh and Andrea Ruse. Inspired by the music we love. For more, visit thesoundpodcast.com.